Hi there. This is Jennifer Passarello from Circa19XX.com. Welcome to Circa Sunday Night, the podcast. think of Circa 19XX land as time travel for the imagination, where we explore all kinds of glamorous and beautiful old things from the early part of the 20th century. So go put on your fringe and your long rope of pearls, and let's Charleston our way to Dreamsville. It's the cure for insomnia. It's Circa Sunday Night. there. How was your weekend? Was it full of fun and freedom and peace and joy? Well, I hope so, because that's what weekends are all about, right? The weekends are about living an entirely different sort of life. At least that's the way I think of the weekend. You know, it's the life I would live if I didn't have to work, which I wish I didn't have to work. I know you all can relate, but it's the truth. I'm I'm ready to retire, and yet... Retirement is so many years away. Oh, goodness. But anyway, that's why I love the weekends so much. You know, I get up early on the weekends, just as I do every other day of the week. I usually try to go for a walk. Um, This morning, I tried to go for a walk. I went to church, and then I was going to take a walk immediately after that, and it was raining. But, you know, most of the time, I try to take a walk in the morning. But I also do a lot of reading on the weekends. And I have to say, because it was raining today, Today was a great reading day. So, I don't know, the weekend is really living the good life, isn't it? I wish it could last a little bit longer. Two days is just not enough, is it? Well, speaking of reading, you should see the stack of books that I have in front of me. Earlier this week, I went to my local library and I came back with this huge pile of books. And there's nothing more exciting than that. You know, I love diving into a fresh stack of books from the library. That's so much fun. But, you know, a couple of the books that are in the stack, and this is actually where I've started, is um, they're about the Cartier family, you know, Cartier, the jewelers. So I've got a, a book about the family. I just started that. And then I also got this enormous coffee table book that is just full of these beautiful, beautiful Cartier pieces that they designed for royalty and other super wealthy people over the years. And oh my gosh, what beautiful pieces. So beautiful. You know, I will never own pieces like that. I mean, who does really? So few of us can afford anything like that. I don't really even want to own anything like that. But I, I like knowing that it's out there somewhere. They're little pieces of art. And they're so beautiful. So, you know, it's enough for me to just sort of look at them in a coffee table book. But gosh, I must have spent, I don't know, maybe an hour, hour and a half today, just flipping through those pages, looking at those beautiful pieces and just admiring them. What a relaxing way to spend a rainy afternoon. Let's see, what else did I do? Oh, goodness. How could I forget this? 
I also watched a couple of fantastic films this weekend. I mean really fantastic films, the kind of films that you think about the next day. That's usually how I evaluate whether or not I think a film is good. If I watch a film and then I don't think about it again, you know, I just figure, well, it probably wasn't that good, wasn't very worthwhile. But if I watch a film and that storyline just lingers, maybe I'm thinking about it later that day, or maybe even I'm thinking about it the next day, that's when I know, ooh, I've got a good one here. Well, lucky me, I had two really fantastic films that I watched this weekend, and both of those films really form the basis of tonight's episode. So both of those films were written by our man of the hour, Rod Serling, hence the title of our episode, Serling Sunday Night. See what I did there? Kind of cute, right? Instead of Circus Sunday Night, Serling Sunday Night. Oh, yes. So very clever. (laughs) Well, this episode was really inevitable. I knew from the very beginning that if Circus Sunday Night was going to be about really cool stuff from the early to mid-20th century, the Twilight Zone would come up eventually, and therefore Rod Serling would come up eventually. I've been a lifelong Serling fan because, as you know, if you've listened to this podcast at all, there is nothing that I love more than stories, and no one tells a story like Rod Serling. I know you're familiar with Rod Serling. He's most famous for his association, of course, with the Twilight Zone, which was his baby. But that was by no means the only thing, or even really the most important writing, that he ever did. Of course, I'm such a huge Twilight Zone fan that if it was the only thing he ever did, I would still be fascinated by him. But, you know, he was just a beautiful, beautiful writer, an amazing storyteller, and he left behind a treasure trove of screenplays, narrative adaptations of screenplays, essays, interviews, all kinds of great stuff out on the internet that fans like me can dive into and explore. Now, Rod Serling is associated with a lot of projects that we still know well today. Okay, so besides The Twilight Zone, he's probably best known for his next anthology series, which was The Night Gallery. But between The Twilight Zone and The Night Gallery, he actually wrote another series that most people don't know or remember. I didn't know about it, honestly. But it was called The Loner, which was a Western. I don't know a whole lot about that series. I think it only lasted one season. I don't believe it was a huge hit at the time, so I think that's why so few of us know about it. But I'm intrigued because I love the title, The Loner. That's kind of me. (laughs) And so uh, I'm intrigued. I want to know more. But anyway, that's for another day, another, another research project. Now, In addition to Night Gallery, Twilight Zone, The Loner, um, he was also associated with the 1968 film Planet of the Apes. He was the screenwriter of that film. Now, he didn't write the novel on which it was based, but he wrote the screenplay. If you have seen that film, and again, I'm talking about the 1968 version. I haven't seen the, the newer version. You know that it has a classic Serling twist at the end. So, Serling wrote lots of stuff that did not have an ironic twist ending, but 
So many of his stories did that he's really become known for that, the Serling twist, right? Well, that uh, 1968 Planet of the Apes has one doozy of a twist ending. And that was Serling's idea. That was actually a departure from the novel. The novel, apparently, I've never read the novel, but apparently the novel did not have that ending. So, you know, that, that film is readily available. I'm going to avoid doing what I very typically do. I usually have no compunction about revealing the ending of shows just because I love talking about them so much. But this time, because it's so easy to go out and watch that film, I'm not going to reveal the ending. But I can just tell you that it's a stunner, and it's the most memorable part of that film. Oh, my. There, You know what? There is just so much to go into when it comes to Rod Serling's work. I mean, there's just so much writing that he left behind, and I love everything, even the bad stuff that he wrote. He did write some bad stuff. We'll talk about that later. But even that, I have a little bit of nostalgia for that as well. Now, we're not going to talk about the Night Gallery or the Planet of the Apes tonight, but we will talk a bit about the Twilight Zone. Now, there's so much to talk about with that show, and I have such a lifelong love affair with it, that here's what I've decided to do. I am going to introduce tonight a series under the Circa Sunday Night banner called Serling Sunday Night, right? I already mentioned that to you. But we will have these every now and then. Okay, so fear not if Rod Serling is not your cup of tea and you're thinking, well, Jennifer, I like the other stuff that you cover better. That's okay. We're going to stick with that stuff too. But every now and then, I think I'm going to circle back talk a little bit more about different Twilight Zone episodes just because I can't help myself. I love it so much. And, you know, it's my podcast, so I guess I can do that, right? All right. So anyway, we will have our very first Serling primer, you could call it, tonight. And then every now and then, we will spend, um, you know, some future episodes with Mr. Serling as well. But now back to tonight's show. Let's go over our itinerary. We're going to take a very brief look at Rod Serling, the man and the writer. And I do mean brief because I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but I do think it's helpful if we're going to make a study of Serling's stories, it's helpful to know what his um, recurring themes were and maybe some of the things in his life that may have influenced those themes. So we'll take a look at that. But what I really want to do is spend most of our evening on his work. We'll talk about the big three titles that were Serling's crowning achievements. The big three. Now, what were they? Well, remember those two fantastic teleplays that I said that I watched this uh, weekend? Well, those are two of them. One is called Patterns. That's the one that really put Rod Serling on the map. The second one is Requiem for a Heavyweight. And the third one, of course, is The Twilight Zone. Now, there's a fourth one we could kind of throw in there, Seven Days in May. I did not include that one, and I'll be honest with you, the reason why I did not is because I haven't seen that film. It's supposed to be very good. It is on my list of things to watch. But really, you know, if we're going to do a study of Rod Serling, the three that we have to do a deep dive in are the three that I mentioned, okay? Patterns, Requiem for a Heavyweight. And, of course, The Twilight Zone. 
Next up, we'll take a brief look at episode one of The Twilight Zone. This is a fabulous little tale called Where Is Everybody? Love that one. And we'll set the stage for those discussions of The Twilight Zone in the future that I mentioned, because we're going to take a look at the worst episodes in that series. The, I'm, I'm going to call them the five worst episodes. I will get into how I arrived at these five episodes that I believe are the worst, but we will talk about those briefly so we don't have to talk about them in future episodes. I'd rather talk about the really good episodes in the future. Okay, and then we will wrap up, as we always do, with my favorite thing of the week. So buckle your seatbelt. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Let's go. I've been doing a lot of reading for this episode. I've been reading Serling screenplays, and I've also been reading this fantastic book about Rod Serling that I highly recommend if you're interested in his career, his writing, his themes, his philosophy. It's called Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination by Nicholas Parisi. Now, here's the good news. Unlike so many of the books that I talk about on this show, this one is easy to get. It's not out of print. It's relatively new. I think it might have come out in 2018, 2019. But I will have a link to it on the show notes if you're interested. But I love this book. I've read it cover to cover, and it's thick. It's a thick book. There's a lot in there. But it just flew by. It was so entertaining. It had so much good stuff in there that I could not put it down. It's kind of like this extremely comprehensive walkthrough of pretty much everything Serling ever wrote. The screenplays, the short stories, every episode that he wrote for The Twilight Zone. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that the actual screenplays are in there, but he has, you know, a synopsis of every single Twilight Zone episode and every single Night Gallery episode. So if you are a Night Gallery fan, I know a lot of Night Gallery fans are out there, This book has a whole section on Night Gallery as well. Now, interestingly enough, I don't really care for Night Gallery. I know that Rod Serling had his own problems with that show. He did not have the same level of control over Night Gallery that he did with Twilight Zone. And both shows just had a very different tone. Twilight Zone is a little science fiction-y. You know, it's, it's often categorized as science fiction, although there's not a whole lot of science in The Twilight Zone. You know, sometimes there are uh, some scientific storylines, but for the most part, they're more human interest. There's some that are, are very sentimental. There's a lot of really interesting messages in The Twilight Zone episodes. Night Gallery has an entirely different tone. It's really dark. You know, it's kind of a dark series. And I have not seen all of the Night Gallery episodes. There are a couple of good ones that I've seen, but most of them just don't really care for them that much. I'm a Twilight Zone girl through and through. Now, here's one of the really fun things about the Parisi book. 
not only does he have all this information about all these things that Sterling wrote, but he also has a rating system that he uses to rate the best and the worst of the Twilight Zone and the Night Gallery episodes. I'll be talking more about that rating system a little bit later. In some cases, I disagree with him, but in most cases, when it comes to Twilight Zone and the way he rated them, I'm totally in agreement. So just a few differences of opinion now and then, but most of the time, I agree with Mr. Parisi. But you know, what's great about this book, too, is that if you're a Twilight Zone fan like I am, this is going to be one of those great resource, uh, you know, reference books that I'm going to be referencing over and over again. So this is just, you know, when I got the book and I started reading it, I was just so glad. I'm like, yes, I need this in my library. Now we have to talk a bit about Rod Serling himself. From all the articles I've read about him and certainly the impression that I got from Parisi's book, Rod Serling was a handful. (laughs) He was very sensitive, extremely self-critical. And yet, despite that self-criticism, I think he had a sense of how good he was. As I mentioned before, not everything he wrote was fantastic. He wrote some bad stuff. In fact, when we get later on into the show, um, where I'm talking about the worst Twilight Zone episodes, I'm going to talk about five of those. Serling wrote four of the five. So not everything he wrote was spectacular. But you know what? You can't hit a home run every time. You have to take risks, and sometimes your judgment is off. I mean, it happens to me too. But, you know, I always say that you have to be terrible to be good. And when Serling was at his best, he was really, really, really good. Now, while I get the impression that he was a very compassionate, kind person, he could say some pretty mean things about his own work. You know, I I don't have the quote in front of me, but I, I remember in the Parisi book, one of the things that he had said about his own work is that it wouldn't stand the test of time, that when he looks at a series like The Twilight Zone, there were just a handful of episodes that were worth anything. And I'm like, you're hurting me with those words. I love so many of the Twilight Zone episodes. You know, I think he was a little overly critical of his own work. But I have known a lot of creative people that were that way. So, you know, I guess that's to be expected. All right. Well, not only did he say mean things about his own work, he could be a real pill to work with. He was often referred to as Hollywood's angry young man because he was always clashing with somebody. Now, most often, he was clashing with censors. He was also constantly in these battles with industry executives. And what frustrated him the most about these executives is they just didn't seem to understand his work. All they seemed to be interested in was satisfying advertisers. Okay, well, we have to remember that this is a business, right? And the advertisers, they're the customers. That's where the money was coming from. So he had trouble kind of balancing the artistic freedom that he wanted with the practicality of how do we pay the bills? And so for that reason, he was constantly at odds with executives. And he did not make any secret of these little controversies. 
you know, he talked about them openly, and audiences were very well aware of them. He also had very strong opinions on issues like racism and war, and these themes often found their way into his stories. So we'll talk about his themes in a moment. Well, actually, you know what? Let's talk about themes right now. Because like most writers, Serling tends to revisit certain themes over and over again. And we're going to talk about those themes as we look at Patterns and Requiem for a Heavyweight. Because we can see those themes, those recurring themes, clearly in both of those films. Now, one of my favorite Serling qualities, though, is the sentimentality of his stories. His stories had soul. You know, he he made you feel deeply for his characters because he felt deeply for them. And he also had great nostalgia for an idyllic past. And that's kind of me too, so I can totally relate to that. And that leads to those recurring Serling themes. There are two things that seem to shape his stories more than anything else. The first was his childhood in Binghamton, uh, Binghamton, New York. And the second was his service in the military. Now, here's what Nicholas Parisi had to say about Serling, uh, the Serling themes in his book, Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. Let me just read a little excerpt here. Anyone who has paid attention to even a portion of Rod Serling's work will have likely noticed that there are settings Serling frequently visited, character types he repeatedly examined, plot devices he often utilized, and themes that recurred. The battlefield and the boxing ring are the two most common settings in Serling's body of work. The athlete, often but not always a boxer, who must face the fact that he's past his prime, was a favorite character type for Serling to dramatize. If an athlete were inappropriate for the type of story Serling wanted to tell, he might substitute a burned-out business executive. Let me stop right there from uh, Parisi's book. We're going to see both of those themes very clearly in Patterns and Requiem for a Heavyweight. It's going to be really obvious. Okay, back to the Parisi book. Time travel was a favorite plot device, especially if it could provide the burned-out executive a second chance at a less stressful and more fulfilling life. Recurring Serling-esque themes include age versus youth, the obsolete man, we'll talk about that a little bit later too, sensitivity versus insensitivity, individual morality versus mob mentality, and the destructive effects of prejudice. Connecting fictional elements to a writer's biography can be risky, but in Serling's case, doing so is relatively straightforward. As director John Frankenheimer once said, there was a lot of rod in everything he wrote. Okay, again, that passage was from uh, Nicholas Parisi's book. And by the way, not only did he write that fabulous book that I was kind of gushing over earlier, but he is also on the board of directors of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, which is a charitable organization dedicated to preserving and promoting Rod Serling's legacy. Here's Parisi again, writing about the Binghamton influence in Serling's writing. When Serling was not yet two years old, his family relocated to Binghamton, 70 miles south of Syracuse. Battlefields and boxing rings may be Serling's two most common physical settings, 
but in a Serling script, Binghamton literally or figuratively is nearly always in the dramatic mix on some level. Everybody has to have a hometown, Serling wrote. Binghamton's mine. In the strangely brittle, terribly sensitive makeup of a human being, there is a need for a place to hang a hat, or a kind of geographical womb to crawl back into, or maybe just a place that's familiar because it's where you grew up. When I dig back through memory cells, I get one particularly distinctive feeling, and that's one of warmth, comfort, and well-being. For whatever else I may have had, or lost, or will find, I've still got a hometown. This, nobody's going to take away from me. Parisi goes on to write, His memories may have been idyllic, but when dramatizing these memories, Serling never overlooked one element in the definition of nostalgia. Pain. In literal terms, one cannot feel nostalgic without pain. The memory of an idyllic past is inseparable from a painful, irreconcilable yearning for that past. This theme of severe homesickness, perhaps more than any other, pervades Serling's body of work. Okay, so his nostalgia for Binghamton is one dimension of Serling's world. His experience in World War II is another. Serling was eager to join the war effort, so much so that he enlisted in the Army the very day after he graduated from high school in 1943. And it was in the Army that he began boxing, and he competed as a flyweight. Okay, I know zero about boxing, everybody, so I don't know what a flyweight is. Does that mean that he didn't weigh much? I think that's what that means. Lightweight? He was kind of a small man. He was five feet, four inches tall, if I remember correctly. So that must be what that means. But anyway, it was in the army that he first became acquainted with boxing. But here is a brief description of his military career from Wikipedia. Serling first saw combat in November of 1944, when his division landed in the Philippines. The 11th Airborne Division was not used as paratroopers, however, but as light infantry during the Battle of Leyte. It helped mop up after five divisions that had gone ashore earlier. For a variety of reasons, Serling was transferred to the 511th Demolition Platoon, nicknamed the Death Squad, for its high casualty rate. Serling's time in Leyte shaped his writing and political views for the rest of his life. Serling's final assignment was as part of the occupation force in Japan. During his military service, Private Serling was awarded the Purple Heart, the Bronze Star, and the Philippine Liberation Medal. Serling's combat experience affected him deeply and influenced much of his writing. It left him with nightmares and flashbacks for the rest of his life. He said, I was bitter about everything and at loose ends when I got out of the service. I think I turned to writing to get it off my chest. Okay, so in this very brief little synopsis of Serling's background, we get a feel for his love of his hometown, we see where boxing enters the picture, and how the war left an indelible imprint on him. Remembering these three factors will be helpful to us as we explore his work. Now let's get to the stories. That's the good part.
Good evening. This is Charles Stark speaking for the Kraft Foods Company, makers of the world's favorite cheese, who bring you two fine plays each week all year long on the Kraft Television Theater. Okay, we're going to start our uh, discussion of these two films with Patterns. And as I mentioned before, Patterns is a project that puts Serling on the map. Now, let me just say up front, as I very often do on these episodes, spoiler alert, I'm going to be talking through the entire story arc, including the endings. But in this case, please, please, please do go out and watch these films in their entirety. It really doesn't matter if you know the ending on these, because there are so many beautiful nuances, so many poignant scenes throughout both films that, you know, I can't begin to talk about those here on a podcast. You really have to see those for yourself. I am going to put links to both of these films out in the show notes. You can watch both of them for free out on YouTube. Okay, so we're going to start with Patterns. Now, there are two versions of Patterns. Serling wrote the original teleplay for the Kraft Television Theater, and that was produced in 1955. It was a huge hit. I mean, it really did make him famous. There was the before Patterns career of Rod Serling, and then there was the after Patterns career of Rod Serling, and he became a household name because of that show. It won all kinds of critical acclaim, And so then it made its way onto the big screen in 1956. Serling also wrote the script for that version, though there were a few differences between the original teleplay and the film version. Now, I have read the original teleplay, but I haven't actually seen that. What I saw was the film. So that's what I'm referencing. I'm not sure if that original teleplay still exists. Um, because it was live. It was, it was done live. And so there's not a whole lot of footage of those old live shows. So I'm, I'm not even sure if it's out there, but the 1956 film version is out on YouTube and it's excellent. And that's the one that I'm going to be referencing and linking in the show notes. Okay. So patterns is a simple story. It's set within a big corporation and it's, It's essentially about this old, obsolete executive. Remember, obsolete man is one of his common themes. But this obsolete executive is named William Briggs. And he's actually being pushed out of his position to be replaced by a new up-and-comer named Fred Staples. Now, let me stop right there. (laughs) Because that alone is enough to grab me. Because honestly, that's the world I live in. I've worked in corporate America a very long time, and while the characters and patterns may be a little bit more obvious about their motives than what is typical in my experience, what Serling does here that I think is spot on is capture the constant stress and anxiety that is the cost of success in the work world. You know, the biggest cost of success is always having to look over your shoulder to see who's coming up from behind. You know, something that I've heard countless times at work is the fear of being found out. 
That is, feeling like someone is going to find out that you're not really good enough for your position, that you were a mishire. I hear this all the time. Now, my background is in HR and learning and development, and I can tell you that after 30 years in those fields, I've pretty much seen it all. And so I think patterns is really gripping because of the emotional toll of success that's captured here in this film. it, It rings true. In other words, Serling nailed it. I want to give you a quick synopsis of the story, and in order to make things a little bit easier on me, I'm just grabbing this from Wikipedia. Okay, so here, here's the story in a nutshell. Walter Ramsey is the ruthless head of Ramsey & Company, a Manhattan industrial empire. He brings on the youthful industrial engineer Fred Staples for a new executive role at the home office. Ramsey came to know Staples when he acquired the company Staples had worked for and he was really impressed with his work. Almost immediately, it becomes clear that Ramsey is grooming Staples to replace the aging Bill Briggs as a second-in-command at the company. Out with the old, in with the new, right? Briggs has been with the firm for decades, having worked for and really deeply admired Ramsey's father, who founded the company. His concern for the employees clashes repeatedly with Ramsey's ruthless uh, methods, Ramsey won't fire Briggs outright, but he does everything in his power to sabotage and humiliate him into resigning. The old man stubbornly refuses to give in. Staples has mixed feelings about the messy situation, his ambition conflicting with his sympathy for Briggs. Now imagine this scenario. Okay, so we've got this old man who's on his way out. They don't want to fire him. They can't fire him. So they're going to try to make life so miserable for him that he quits. Only he can't really quit. Into this comes the new guy, Staples, who did not even know when he walked in the door that he was there to replace Briggs. And so he kind of steps into the middle of a whole lot of drama here. Now, I'm going to insert here one of my favorite scenes from this film. This is an exchange between Briggs and Staples. Okay, so remember, Briggs is the old executive that they're wanting to push out. Staples is the new guy. Here, Briggs compares and contrasts Walter Ramsey's approach to running the company to that of his father. Briggs also explains here why, despite the pressure, he doesn't quit. And again, wow, does this ring true. When you listen, it's probably going to ring true for you, too. I want you to take a listen to this scene. It's a few minutes long, but I want to play it because as you listen, think about whether you've ever been in a similar position. I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting old. I used to be pretty tough. Still tough, I guess. But every now and then I get tired. Tired of arguments, tired of battling, tired of the whole bloody mess with all this fancy organization and super finagling. Oh, I know it's legal and modern and all that. It's what they call the trend, isn't it? In the old days, things were a lot simpler. Businesses grow, Bill. This business didn't grow. Not since old man Ramsey passed on. It's been added to. That's not growth. It's just plain acquisition of business of stock transfers and bank loans. 
manipulated by hired shysters and their sharpshooting accountants, and organized and controlled by a barracuda like Walter Ramsey. You sure you won't have a snifter, Fred? I wish you would. No. Well, times change, Bill, you know that. But do they always change for the better? Old man Ramsey could walk down a production line and call every man by his first name and get called by his first name in return. I, I know that feeling, believe me. He didn't need public relations experts. Honor was enough. Character. And he never sold a share of stock in his company either. Not till the Depression came along and he had to raise cash or go under. And do you know why? Because he would not lay off one single man. That's the kind of man Jim Ramsey was. Now I sit in that fancy conference room with Jim Ramsey's son. I sit there and I see all the old man's principles, all his beliefs, every single thing holy to him, jobbed off by this spindly little financial wizard, this wall-eyed, ice-coated little rooster who knows more about the ventures than he does about the human heart. Bill, I'm all right. Take it easy. I'm all right. Begin to work yourself up. Sit down, friend. Sit down quietly and be a nice, sympathetic friend and associate. I'm wondering if you're as good a human being as you are an industrial relations man. He doesn't like you, does he? No. Bill, has it ever occurred to you to resign? Of course it has. Thousand times. Why don't you? What? Resign. You can't take the chance of letting this man fire you. On our level, you don't get fired. You know that. After 30 years of productive work, they can't say to a man like me, all right, now get out. They just can't do that. So what do they do? They create a situation. A situation you can't work in and finally that you can't live in. Where there's tension, abuse, small humiliations. It all starts out on a scale so subtle, so microscopic, that at first you can't really believe it's happening at all. But gradually the thing begins to take shape. The pieces fit together, all the little bits, and it becomes unmistakable. To chip away at your pride, your security, till you begin to have doubts, and then fears. Ramsey, he wants me to resign. He wants me to get my cross so full that I'll be miserable enough to do just that. But you take it. Yes, I take it. Why? The bigger the job, the more desperately you try to hang. Why? Out. Why? Why do you take it? Why don't you quit? Quit? Yes, quit. Get out of it. Chuck it. You'd have your pension, your peace of mind. No. You know Ramsey's gonna go on hounding you until he makes you quit. Never. He'll never make me quit. Bill, I... I, I wish I could understand why you go on taking it. Because I'm weak, I guess. Because I'm 62 years old and I don't think I could get another job. How's that strike you? 
How do you think? Once in a while, I have a dream. I dream I'm sitting in that conference room and he starts working me over. I'm just smiling, see? Perfectly calm and I'm taking it. I don't show the slightest resentment. And then, then without any change of expression, I get up out of my chair and I walk over to him. And I say, Ramsey. Bill. Ramsey. Bill. Ramsey, I say. And then I smash him. Bill. And then I smash him again. Bill, get a hold of yourself. And I hit him again. What's and wrong with you? And I hold him up. Bill. And up, Ramsey, I say, I'm not through yet. I love this scene for so many reasons. First of all, you can feel the inner turmoil here. On the one hand, Briggs longs for the past, right? There's that nostalgia theme that Serling loves so much. Therefore, escape from the present is part of this story, too. So Briggs longs for the past. He wants to escape the present on one hand. But then on the other hand, he can't quit. He's paralyzed. Now, we see a couple of other Serling themes here, too. Of course, there's the youth versus age theme. And, you know, Briggs, of course, as I mentioned, is the obsolete man. But there's also the sensitivity versus insensitivity theme. It's hard to make out here in in this clip, but Briggs is beloved by his secretary because he's so kind and thoughtful. He's the sensitive man. Ramsey is cold and calculating, the insensitive man. I think the contrast is depicted really powerfully here. But what about Staples? What's he? Remember, he's the one that's been brought in to replace Briggs. When we first meet Staples, he's a kind, thoughtful man. He's fresh from Cincinnati. He's in the big city for the first time. We get to follow him on his first day as a new employee in this big corporation. And we sort of feel as if we're witnessing a a lamb wandering into the lion's den. But unlike Briggs, Staples' character begins to harden a bit in adaptation to his environment. And, you know, we see that happening throughout the arc of the story. Let's continue with the synopsis from Wikipedia. The stress ultimately gets to Briggs, who collapses after a confrontation with Ramsey and later dies. This causes a heated showdown between Ramsey and Staples, in which Staples announces he's quitting, and Ramsey says that only high performers have any right to leading posts. In the end, Ramsey persuades him to stay, telling him that he is the only one who can function at Briggs' level, and that he would not be able to reach his full potential anywhere else. Staples accepts a promotion with double his salary and stock options, but he warns Ramsey that he will actively work to replace him in the company. Okay, so I want to play that scene because, again, this is a really good one. Okay, so this is that scene I just described in which that showdown takes place. So Briggs has died, and Staples has had enough. He's ready to quit. And so we have this really powerful exchange. This takes place toward the end of the film between Ramsey and Staples. Bill was supposed to go to Lansing tomorrow morning for a meeting with Phillips. You'll have to take his place. I believe I've already mentioned that. Yeah, you mentioned it.
You leave on flight number 116, 832 from LaGuardia. Miss Lanier will meet you at the airport with your reservation and all the memoranda and correspondence pertaining to the negotiation. You'll have three uninterrupted hours in the air to familiarize yourself with all the details. I have no interest whatever in the Phillips matter. What was that? I'm telling you that I don't want the job. I'm through. I'm quitting. I resign as of now. Why? Because I hate your guts. You used Bill Briggs for a whipping boy. You made him knuckle under and then you beat him to death. You wouldn't try anything like that with me because I'd kill you first. I'm not a nice human being. What else? You're nothing but a freak. You'd drive your people into peak efficiency if they can make it or a grave if they can't. Because Bill Briggs lacked the strength and to stand the capacity. Up. He was second in command. He had a lot of responsibility to hold and he cracked up. It was his business too. It's no one's business. It belongs only to the best. To those who can control it, sustain it, nurture it, keep it growing. Right now it belongs to us because we're producing. But in the future it belongs to whoever has the brains, the nerve and the skill to take it away from us. Well, they can have my share of it right now because I don't want any part of it. What do you want from me? Apologies? I don't apologize. What else? A nice unsullied conscience. You walk out of here with a halo because you spoke your mind. What do you do then? Go to work for some nickel and dime outfit run by nice people who won't challenge you and prod you and goad you and drive you to a height you never even dreamed of? A company where there's nothing to fight for because you're the best and there's no competition? Where everything is handed to you and nothing is worth fighting for? I want you to stay. I don't think you understand, Ramsey. I don't like you. I don't like anything about you. I didn't hire you to like me. All right, I'm not a nice person in your eyes. But whatever I am, you learn more, grow more, and do more here with me than anywhere else on Earth. I want you to stay because I need help on my level. And you're the only one who's able to function there. Be a conscience for me if you want. Be anything you like. And if it's something I don't like, you'll know about it soon enough. I think you're strong enough to take it. And if not, I think you're strong enough to get out. Name your terms. All terms are negotiable. I don't think so. Not mine. All right. I just as soon not waste any time doing trading. As of now, your salary is doubled. Your stock option is doubled right down the line. Your expense account is whatever you make it. Add to that a new title, Vice President. I want a lot more than that. You're not going to take me on as just another vice president you can push around. You'll take me as someone who hates you down to the bare nerve. Nothing in the world will ever change that. I'll argue with you, contradict you, fight you in every way I know how. I'll do everything in my power to push you out and take your place myself. Go ahead and try. Mr. Staples, you have yourself a deal. Have it drawn up. No reservations now? Yes, one. Bill had one pitiful little dream that someday he'd walk in here and break your jaw. I reserve the right to have that wish for myself. I'll have it drawn into the contract. With a little rider giving me the same privilege. Oh, uh... Staples... You'll be pleased to know that Bill Briggs' boy is being taken care of.
And this is where we get to see something I really love about Serling. His sympathy is with Briggs and against Ramsey and, you know, the corporation, right? Yes. And yet, we get to experience the whiplash of the Serling twist. Now, this is a more subtle Serling twist. This isn't a Twilight Zone type of twist, but it is nonetheless a twist. We learn in this scene that Ramsey is ensuring that Briggs' son will be well taken care of. And what does that one line tell us? Well, it hints at the fact that he's not evil through and through like we thought. He does have a moral compass after all. Yeah, it may be skewed, but it's there. Serling often argues two sides of an issue in his work, and sometimes he even presents a case against his own opinion. And I love that. I mean, we really do get to see the complexity of this situation. It's very rare that someone is completely right and somebody else is completely wrong. And he really does a great job of sort of humanizing both sides of this argument. So one of the things we have to ask ourselves as we're examining this story is, who is the protagonist? Who's the hero here? Well, the protagonist is generally the person whose character evolves from the beginning of the story to the end. So Fred Staples is our man. None of the other characters change. It's really just Staples. Staples ends up being a force to be reckoned with. And we're left then with the question, has Staples become Ramsey? There is reason to believe so. Along the way, we see an exchange between Staples and his secretary when he kind of barks at her. You know, he kind of sounds like Ramsey. Now, we hope that Staples has enough integrity to maintain a balance between being that tough-minded businessman capable of steering the big ship and the man in touch with his humanity. Okay, so there we have our discussion of patterns. Again, please do go out and watch this film. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, you do know the ending now, but as I said, the ending doesn't really matter. It's what happens along the way from start to finish that makes this such a, a beautiful and powerful story. Okay, so Pattern starred Everett Sloan as Walter Ramsey, Ed Begley as William Briggs, Van Heflin as Fred Staples, and Elizabeth Wilson as Briggs' loyal secretary, Marge Fleming. I didn't really talk about Marge Fleming. This is one of these things that you'll be able to see if you go out and watch the movie. She wasn't in the clips that I played, but she's a really fantastic character as well. She's an observer of all the drama, and it's a, it's a painful journey for her as she's reassigned from Briggs to Staples. She's sort of the, the outside observer, kind of like we are, and so it's very interesting to follow her. Elizabeth Wilson did a fantastic job in that role. Good cooks tonight have a marvelous new soup idea for you. It's a creamy tomato soup with a very special goodness. The secret is a cheese flavor and a creaminess that comes from Kraft's Cheese Whiz. And you can fix that wonderful new soup in a jiffy with Cheese Whiz and a can of condensed tomato soup, whatever kind you usually buy. We put a can of condensed tomato soup in a double boiler, and we've been stirring in an equal amount of water. Now that it's all blended in and piping hot, we spoon a whole eight-ounce jar of tantalizing Cheese Whiz into our hot soup. That's the small size jar, by the way. But let's make sure to get all of that tantalizing cheese goodness into our hot soup. 
The golden cheese whiz starts to melt immediately as we stir it in. Gives our soup a creamy, delicious flavor that's just wonderful. Try this easy trick real soon. You'll love it. Here, we have another way to use cheese whiz. We've heated it over very low heat. And look at the beautiful cheese sauce that we pour over hot cooked and drained cauliflower. Remember, for glorious cheese sauce that makes vegetables, eggs, seafood, something special, just heat cheese whiz. But now, we're using this amazing pasteurized processed cheese spread to fix a quick snack. We're spreading cheese whiz right from the jar on toast triangles from which we have trimmed the crusts. Of course, cheese whiz is a wonderful sandwich spread, too. Whenever you want speedy snacks, sandwiches, appetizers, spread cheese whiz right from the jar. Make cheese whiz the standby for dozens of fast cheese treats at your house. Spoon it into hot foods. Heat it for grand cheese sauce. Spread it for snacks. Get it tomorrow. Crafts Cheese Whiz. Playhouse 90, brought to you by Camel, far and away the largest selling cigarette today. Rich in flavor, mild to smoke. Have a real cigarette. Have a Camel. And by Kimberly Clark, world leader in quality products for home and industry. Among them wonderfully soft Delsey bathroom tissue and Kleenex tissues that pop up one at a time. And by Ansco, America's first manufacturer of quality products for industry, for professional use, for everyone. If it's from Ansco, you know it's A+. Now on to Requiem for a Heavyweight. Okay, I gotta be honest with you. I, I thought this one was going to be a tough one for me. I've been hearing about Requiem for a Heavyweight for, wow, decades probably. And it's been on my list of things to watch probably for about that long. So why did it take me this long to watch it? Because it's about boxing. <laughs> you know, ladies... I'm sure you can relate to me, right? This sounds like a gigantic drag, right? I mean, I just, I hate boxing. I don't understand it. I don't want to understand it. I think it's bloody and gross and, you know, ew, right? It's right up there with war. I hate war stories too. Actually, I think boxing even sounds worse than a war story. So I put this one off. Well, wasn't I pleasantly surprised? This story isn't about boxing. Now, yeah, it does have a boxer in it and a ring, but be not afraid. This film is about Serling's obsolete man, and it explores that sensitivity versus insensitivity theme, too. And boxing is just the backdrop. It's it's just the setting. You have to put these characters in some sort of setting, and in this case, it's a boxing ring. And also, there's a little bit of a love story I mean, it's a it's a very simple little love story, but it's kind of endearing. So, you know, that makes up for all the boxing stuff. How about that? <laughs> Similar to Patterns, there are a couple of versions of Requiem. It was originally written as a teleplay for live dramatization on Playhouse 90, which was this really amazing anthology series back in the 50s. And so Requiem for a Heavyweight was produced in 1956. It was then adapted for a film in 1962. Now, with Patterns, I watched the film version. 
This time, I watched the Playhouse 90 version, and that's the one that I'm going to link down in the show notes. This particular link is to a restored version, and there's a guy at the beginning that explains the whole restoration process. Don't skip that part, because it's really, really fascinating. I learned a lot. Um, you know, and it doesn't last too long. So I don't know, maybe five minutes, maybe not even that long, but it's really fascinating. Again, we have a relatively simple storyline. There's a little bit more uh, complexity here, but essentially the the storyline is fairly simple. And I have to say that I think simple storylines are usually the best because there's not a whole lot cluttering them up. And then you have the time to really kind of tap into the emotional current of the story and also the depth of the characters. Well, Requiem is about a washed-up boxer, a boxer named Mountain McClintock, who once showed a lot of promise. He might have been the heavyweight champion of the world at one point, but he's become brain-damaged due to too many blows to the head. And after his last devastating defeat, his doctor refuses to okay future bouts, saying that one more fight could kill him. Well, this is terrible news, because boxing is all McClintock knows. Now, at his advanced age, I think at one point he says what how old he is, and I want to say he said he was 33 in the story. I think that's what it was. But anyway, he's he's not a young man, or, you know, he's not a, he's not a teenager, right? But... Now, for the first time, he has to contemplate a future that up to now, you know, his life really hasn't prepared him for. He's also really intensely loyal to his manager, a guy named Maish. And Maish has been sort of nurturing and developing him ever since McClintock was a young man. McClintock is most proud of the fact that in 111 bouts, he's never thrown a fight. Now, we hear that multiple times in the in the film. He says that, I don't know, three or four times. And I think that's really important. It's significant because it speaks to the integrity of this boxer. He's not most proud of winning. He's most proud of the fact that he was upstanding. He fought the good fight and he didn't throw a fight. This is going to be contrasted with Mesh a little bit later in the film. Now, Mesh has his own problems. He owes the mafia money. Desperate to pay them off, we find out that he actually bet against McClintock, that McClintock would be knocked out early in the last fight. So, you know, he can already see that McClintock is deteriorating. He knows that he doesn't really have the chops that he used to have. And so he starts betting against him. This is devastating, right? I mean, you know, we know this before McClintock does. And when McClintock makes that discovery, it's pretty heartbreaking, actually. All right. So instead, though, of McClintock, you know, going down for the count, he takes a beating and refuses to go down. It's at this point that our hearts really start to break for McClintock. Not only is his career over, but he no longer knows where he fits. And the man that he looks up to, Mesh has bet against him. This is where Serling's sensitive and complex portrayal of these characters really comes into play, because just when we start to dislike Mesh, we learn that the reason he's broke 
is because he's been taking care of McClintock's medical bills and his living expenses, even though McClintock hasn't been earning much money. See, this is what I love about Serling. I love, love, love this. Okay, so, you know, a one-dimensional character, Mesh as a one-dimensional character, would be all bad, right? He's only out for the money. He can see that his protege here is on his way out, and so he's going to try to leverage um, as much as he can out of that person. But we see why he's in the, the state that he's in. He's been taking care of McClintock. He's been nurturing him. He's been paying his bills. He's made sure that, you know, he, his medical bills are paid for. Now, you can definitely make the argument that, well, yeah, they needed to patch him up so he could go back into the ring and may, could make more money. But you do get a sense that there's more to that relationship than that. There's there's some complexity there, and I think that's fabulous. I love that. Now, I have to mention that the setting for much of this story is in a bar that's frequented by has-been boxers. In fact, they call it the graveyard. These are boxers who, you know, their glory days are behind them, and they just sort of pass their time by living in the past, telling those stories over and over again. McClintock, brain-damaged as he is, recognizes that there's something really sad and hopeless in this bar with all these people locked in the past with nothing to look forward to. One of the questions posed by Serling's script is, where does McClintock end up? There in that dead-end bar? Is that where he's headed? Is that his destiny? Well, it looks like that's exactly where he's going to end up for much of the story. But is he ultimately able to break away? Because there are a couple of twists and turns that take place. Does he find the courage to step into a new life? Well, there's a really poignant scene between McClintock and Mesh. McClintock is in the street, and he comes across a poster for a new boxer, a new champion. McClintock, the obsolete man, is already being replaced. He starts punching the wall where the poster is. And when Mesh finds him and comforts him, he tells him it isn't the end of the world. Let's listen. Take it easy. Take it easy. The world didn't end tonight. Remember that. The world didn't end just because you left the ring. It didn't end for you either. Come on. Mesh? Mesh, would you kind of stick around a little bit? You know, I could always depend on you, Mesh. I always needed to depend on you. Sure, Jim. Okay, that short little scene says so much. 
We see what appears to be genuine love between these two men, almost like that son-father kind of relationship. But nothing is ever that simple, right? So when the music gets really dramatic at the end of that clip, and of course you can't see it because this is an audio-only podcast, but when that music becomes really dramatic, Mage spots a wrestling poster. Now, wrestling is rigged. The wrestlers dress up in costumes. They're really showmen. They're not athletes. So they lack the dignity of the boxers, at least in this story. I have no idea about real wrestlers or real boxers, but at least in this story, that's how wrestlers are portrayed. But Mesh begins to formulate a plan that's going to move McClintock into that world. Now, what you couldn't see in that clip And this is one of these subtle little things that are just so important. You know, you could pass it right by, but it's very important. When McClintock first goes out into the street, he sees both of those posters, right? He sees the wrestling poster first. Then he sees that boxing poster that he ultimately goes over and starts punching. But before he gets to that boxing poster, he saw that wrestling poster and he rejected it. Okay, so he, he looks at it, he turns away, he really turns his back on it, and he goes over to the boxing poster. I think that's really an important scene. Sort of foreshadows the decision that he's going to have to make later on in the film. I want to play another clip now, and this one is at the employment agency. McClintock is taking his first tentative steps into the outside world, and it's really scary for him. He's with Army, who is his friend and cut man. I had to look that up. (laughs) I had no idea what a cut man was. Uh, I'll explain that term later. Uh, But anyway, he was a cut man, kind of like a handler and his friend. So they're, they're together there in the employment agency. And it's here that McClintock meets Grace, the employment agent. All right, let's listen. You look fine. Don't worry, you look great. What do I say, Army? What do you mean, what do you say? You just go in and tell her you want a job. That's all. It's very simple. Army, the past few days I've been 35 places already. You know, some of these jokers won't even let me in the door. Oh, it's different here. Yeah. Mr. McClintock. Yes. That's me. That's me. In here, please, Mr. McClintock. I can't go in there with you. I'll stay here at ringside. I can't go in and fight for you. Go ahead. Sit down, Mr. McClintock. Thank you. Thank you very much. No. I was was just wondering. Oh, I I beg your pardon. You were going to say? I was just wondering if my friend could come in. Is he looking for employment, too? No, no, not exactly, but he's kind of my handler. I beg your pardon. No, that's all right. He, He stay out there. So Harlan McClintock, your age is... 33. Place of birth? Kennesaw. 
Oh, that's in Tennessee. Oh, I see. Uh, your education. Mr. McClintock, you've left that blank here. My education? Oh, <laughs> oh you mean school. That's right. In ninth grade. Then you left, is that it? Yeah, then I left. Now, field of interest. What do you like to do? Almost anything. Anything at all. Past employment record, Mr. McClintock. You have nothing written down there. Who've been your past employers? Well, you see, I haven't had any past employers. I mean, I mean, like you mean down here on this paper. I've been kind of on my own. Except you might say I, I've been working for Mesh. Mesh? Yeah, you know, all I've been doing 14 years is fighting. Fighting? You know, you know, in a, in a, in a ring. A professional prize fighter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you catch on. You're a professional prize fighter. I mean, a heavyweight. Sounds like interesting work, Mr. Flynn. Well, it, it, it's a living. Look, I, I don't want you to go to any trouble. You know, Army said to tell you that Anything you've got, Jake, with me. Dishwashing, anything. Let's see if we can't examine something else, Mr. McClintock. Something you might like even more. How about factory work? Well, I, I never worked in a factory. No, I don't think I'd know anything about that. No sort of assembly line work? Blueprint reading? Anything like that? Uh, anything in sales? There's a lot of openings in that sort of thing, though. Department store work, anything like that? I couldn't do anything like that. I couldn't sell anything. <laughs> you know, with my face, I'd scare the customers away. You know, I don't want to take up your time. I... Well, the only reason I'm here is because Army. Army said I should come. You know, I've been answering all these ads, and I'm getting no place at all. Mesh needs a dough real bad, and I can't do nothing for him anymore, and I got to You know, I got to get a job. I got to get something. Mr. McClinton. You know, a guy goes along 14 years. All he does is fight. Once a year, twice a year. And, and prelims, semifinals, finals. And what's he supposed to do? They tell him he's through. What's, what's he supposed to know how to do except fight? You know, they got poor Mesh tied up by the ears, and I got to do something for him. Mr. McClintock, we handle a lot of placements here. I'm sure we'll be able to find something for you. Yeah, I, I know, but I don't fit in all these holes here. I, I mean, like, like, like this question here. Why did you leave your last job? State the reason. Oh, that's question nine. Well, you see, Mr. McClintock, what that means. Well, I know what it means. But what do I write down? What do I write down? It would make any sense. I left my last job because I got hit so much I was on my way to Punchy Land, and, and I'd probably go blind. Punchy Land? Sure. Fight so long, you walk around on your heels, listen to the bells. Nadine, that's what happens to you. The doc looks at my eyes. He says, "One or two more fights, I might go blind." You know, it's just a bum break. That's all. It's just not fair. You know, in 1948, they ranked me number five. I'm not kidding you. Number five. And it wasn't any easy year either. There was Charles Walcott and Lewis is still around, and they had me number five. You know, Mace said that if Mace, I got a break. Who's Mace, Mr. McClinton? Well, Mace is my manager. And what does it do to him? You know, it's a fine thing to do to a guy who kept you going 14 years. You just stopped cold on him. So it's just a bum break. It's just not fair at all. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to blow up like that. 
<laughs> you ought to throw me out of here. I, I, I'm sorry. It's perfectly all right, Mr. McClintock. As long as you've got your address down here, we'll contact you if anything comes up. Yes, yeah, sure, I know. Right after the war, I did a lot of work with disabled veterans. You, you know, wounded men who, who had to make a new... Yeah, go on. I meant... I, I meant you'd be surprised that the different kinds of openings that come up for... Cripples. For guys like that? I didn't mean just that. I meant for, for people who have special problems. But I got no special problems. You see, there wasn't any room down on that cheek, but I was almost a heavyweight champion of the world. I'm, I'm a big, ugly slob, and I look like a freak, but I was almost a heavy... You know, I'd, I'd like to put that down on that piece of paper. This is no punk. This is a guy who is almost a heavyweight champion of the world. Did you hurt your head, Mr. Smith? Yeah, sure it hurts. But I'm getting used to it. You know, it's getting like an old friend. Every punch you take for 14 years, you, you just slough it off because it, it's part of the bill you pay going up. But after that, all those punches, they start to hurt. <laughs> they hurt some guys like, like you want to scream. You know, you paid the bill for nothing. Mr. McClintock! Mr. McClintock, I think we'll be able to find you something that you'll like. Just give us time. Something that I like? Well, you do that, miss, because I don't want very much. You see, all I want is a heavyweight championship of the world. That's all. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful scene this is. Here again is Serling nailing the human condition. Notice early on that McClintock suggests the lowest level jobs. You know, he says, dishwasher. That's his idea. And in his mind, that's really all he's good for. He had one thing that he was groomed for, and that was being a heavyweight champion, and that dream died. So it seems that there's nothing else for him but being a dishwasher. Grace, on the other hand, suggests much more promising jobs. She believes in him, right? So sales, manufacturing, but the prospect just seems completely out of his league. Oh my goodness, wow, There, it, there's just so much angst here. He's trapped, trapped in a dead dream. He doesn't want much, he says, just to be the heavyweight champion of the world. Well, Grace is going to help him break free, or at least she's going to try. This is not the last we see of Grace. In fact, she comes up with this career path that seems a perfect fit for him. She tracks him down at the bar. And um, you know what? I'm going to play another clip here. And this is a longer one, but this scene does a lot of work for us. 
Grace tries to coax McClintock into a new life. It's hard, though, because boxing is all he knows. Let's listen to the clip. It's Carney. What are you doing here? Well, I... Do you want want to sit down by the table? A friend of mine and I had dinner over at McCleary's. It isn't very far from here. She got a headache and went on home. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remembered you're giving me your hotel. And... Well, it was nice of you to look me up. I've never been around here before. There's no change. If you're here once, you've seen it all. Atmosphere, huh? Yeah, you might call it atmosphere. Well, that goes on all the time around here. Mace says this part of the room is the graveyard. And these guys spend their time dying in here. You know, fighting their lives away inside their heads. That's what Mace says. It's pretty sad. Yeah, I suppose it is. I've got a confession to make. I, d- I didn't eat at McCleary's. I ate at home. I came here on purpose. I, I asked for you at your hotel. I- I've been thinking a lot about you, Mr. McClintock. I was just wondering... Yeah, go ahead. I was just wondering if you'd ever thought of working with children. What? Uh, work with children, you know, in athletics. Well, I never given much thought. Do you like children? Children? Well, I, I never had anything to do with them. But I, I always liked them. Yeah, I liked them a lot. Why, you're thinking of summer camp, something like that? That's right, that sort of thing. You know, in a month or so, there'll be a lot of openings. And I, I was thinking, well, perhaps you ought to give that some thought. Yeah, but they're going to have to look at me and, 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 listen to, and listen to me talk. Why not? Look, you've got to begin someplace. You've got to give it a try. Sure, i got to. Why did you come here tonight? I've been thinking about you. I want to help I can. How about it, Mr. McClinton? Could I have a beer? A beer? You mean here? I kind of like it here. Sure. Hey, Charlie. Charlie, would you bring a couple of beers over a table? I'm sorry, sure, bud. Okay, Pally. Excuse me. How about some music? What? Don't you like to listen to music when you drink beer? Music? No, I never give it much thought. Oh, sure, we can we can play music. Hey, Mountain, play my hot tells me, huh? Hey, Charlie, hey, how about a glass for the lady? Antique man? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty. Yeah. 
Yeah, that is pretty. Them are violins. It's beautiful. I, I never had much to do with music, you know. I never had much time. What is that? Well, it's just music. It's just plain old music. You know, I never knew any music really by heart except the national anthem. Because they play it before every fight, the <laughs> national anthem. And then there was Smiley Collins. Who's Smiley Collins? Well, he used to fight it, but he used to play a violin. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? He was a fighter, he used to play a violin. He used to play a violin, seriously? You're real serious. Well, I don't know anything about a violin, you know, but man, that boy, you know, he had a right hand like dynamite. He could knock a wall down with his right hand. I remember one time he was, fighting, he was fighting a guy named Floyd, Willie Floyd. <laughs> Floyd had 20 pounds on him. So Smiley comes out. I'm sorry. You keep a change. They don't have many ladies in here. That's that's why you forgot about the glasses. Thank you. Drink hearty. That's what Mace always says. Drink hearty. Drink hearty. Drink hearty, Mr. McClintock. <laughs> You think a lot of Mays, don't you? Oh, yeah. He's, he's number one. He's a real great guy. He was your manager? Yeah, 14 years. Well, he's a real, real great guy, not just a manager. You know, in the old days, when I was just getting started, he used to, he used to give me everything from clothes to chow. He's a real great guy. Why aren't you married? <laughs> Should I be? Yeah, you're pretty. No, you're not just pretty, you're beautiful. Pretty as a young colt. It's what my old man used to say. Your father? Yeah. A girl is as pretty as a young colt. He always used to tell me that. Go ahead, Mountain. Well, about my father? Mm-hmm. Well, he's a nice guy. He's a real big guy, too. I remember one time I was fighting a guy named Jazzle. Yeah, Elmer Jazzle. He looked just like my old man. He was a spitting image. You know, in the first round, I couldn't throw a punch. So in the second round, look, I closed my eyes, I got him in close, and I hooked him. And I... Yeah. There isn't much else, is there? Besides fighting. No, I guess not. I'm sorry. Don't be. It's just that there's so much else for you that you'll be able to fight. Hey, Martin. Yeah. Them are violins. <laughs> Grace is opening up a whole new world to McClintock. Meanwhile... Mesh is working on his own plan for him, as a wrestler. Mesh sets up this meeting with a wrestling promoter, but McClintock doesn't want to enter that world. Mesh tells him he owes him. Mesh is counting on McClintock to earn enough money for him to get out of debt with the mafia. And so, because McClintock agrees that he owes him, he resigns himself to wrestling. 
Now, the wrestling promoter provides a humiliating costume for McClintock to wear, and McClintock's heart breaks. And so do our hearts. You know, it's, oh, it's a heartbreaking scene. McClintock begs Mage not to make him be a clown. It's essentially a clown suit. And he tells Mage he just can't do it. He can't do it. And here we have the climax. Well, you're late. Come on. We got to get into this stuff. Yeah, sure, me. Sure. Hey, I look for you. I was afraid you wasn't going to come. He's here. Ain't this a lot, kid? <laughs> oh, listen, we're going to kill him. We're going to just knock him dead. <laughs> well, you don't have to keep it on long, kid. You know, you just walk around the ring a couple of times, then you can take it right off. You got these long johns on underneath, see? And then you don't have to put this stuff back on until the bout's over. Clown. That's what he thinks. Can't you think of thought for yourself? It's what I think, too. It's what everybody out there's going to think. Clown. Mesh. Mesh, don't make me. What do you mean, don't make you? What, I mean, your father or something don't make you? You don't do anything you don't want to do. If you don't think you owe me, Okay. Mace, how about a couple of pictures? We ain't had any with the costume yet. Pictures? All part of the build-up, kid. One picture's worth a million words. That's what the Greeks say. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what do you want, him out here in the hall? Uh, out in the hall, I think. We got more room. So? What are you waiting for, Valent? <laughs> Come on, let's hurry it up. I'll be right there, Mr. Sprelly. The clinic's on next. Let's go! Mace, tell him to go away. What do you mean, tell him to go away? Me now and I'm dead, you understand? I'm dead. I can't, Mesh. You got I can't. Dead, mister. You owe me. Mesh, listen, you got my life on a line now. I can't afford to let you cross me. I'll beat you to a pulp myself. I wouldn't be in this jam if it wasn't for you. Mesh, I'll do anything you want, but I can't. I can't. It bothers you too much, doesn't it, huh? Well, it didn't bother you last week to stand in the middle of the ring with your hands at your sides and let Gibbons beat you to a pulp for seven rounds. It didn't bother you a bit, did it? It didn't bother you that I put all my money on you and said you wouldn't go for three. Mesh? You bet against me? Mesh? Why did you bet against me? Would it make any difference, kid? If I hack my left foot and bet it on you, would it make any difference? You're not a winner anymore. There's only one thing left. Make a little on the losing. Fink. You dirty fink, Mesh. You dirty, lousy fink. Because I stood out there and I took it for you. I got to pay for it like this. Like, like this, huh, Mesh? You know, in all the dirty, crummy 14 years I fought for you, I never felt ashamed, Mesh. Not one round, not one single minute. And now I feel ashamed. I'd have, I'd have gone into any ring barehanded against a guy with a cleaver. And that wouldn't have hurt me near as much as this. After this little speech, McClintock picks up his own jacket, rejects that clown suit, 
and he walks out the door. He's made his decision, right? But he makes a stop at the bar, and that's almost seeming like a step backward. He starts talking with the gang in the graveyard, part of that part of the bar where, you know, those old fighters talk about their glory days. And it almost looks at that point as if that's where he's going to stay too. This is when Army, you know, the handler, uh, comes in. He meets up with Grace on the street. Apparently, he asked Grace to meet him there. And he asks her to steer McClintock away from the bar and toward the train station. He's purchased a train ticket for him back to his home in Tennessee. He asks Grace to give it to him. And Army has a beautiful line in this scene. He asks Grace if she loves McClintock. She says she doesn't know. Army tells her, tells her then to let him go because McClintock has been chasing shadows for so long that the next time he gets a hunger for something, he deserves to get it. That's a direct quote. Oh, that's a beautiful line. Oh, I love that. I love that. So McClintock gets a second chance, right? He's going back home to Tennessee, and we don't really know if this is a happy ending. He even says he doesn't know if he has a home anymore. And then Grace says, you've got to give it a chance. He takes the train ticket, and, you know, off he goes. Okay, so what about Mesh? Well, Mesh gets a second chance, too. The mafia has sent a young boxer his way to train. If he takes on this boxer, they'll forget, they'll forgive the debt. Mesh looks over this young kid and he tells him to go home. You know, just leave, save yourself, he says. But the kid says he won't go home. He wants to be a fighter. And so Mesh decides to take him on and he and Army will start all over again with this new fighter. Okay, so we have another masterpiece here by Rod Serling. So much going on in this story. So many poignant scenes, as I mentioned before. Now, we can read into this story, you know, the dignity and value of human life, the power of kindness and belief in other human beings. We can read about second chances. There's just a lot of depth here. Now, we don't know how McClintock makes out in the end, as I said. What happens when he goes home? We don't know. But... It's not really about what happens. It's about perseverance and about the extreme courage that's needed to take that next step and to keep going. Oh my gosh, I love, love, love this story. Even though it's about boxing, I just love it. Okay, so Requiem for a Heavyweight starred Jack Palance as uh, Mountain McClintock. By the way, Jack pa- uh, Palance, what, how do you say his name? Palance, pa- uh, Palance. Um, I, I can't remember. I, I think he's gone. I don't think he's still alive. But anyway, uh, he was Mountain McClintock. He did a fantastic job in that role. Keenan Wynn was Mache. His father, Ed Wynn, was Army. And remember, I said that Army was Mountain's cut man. Okay. So I looked it up and it says, on Wikipedia, that a cut man is a guy that takes care of a fighter in between rounds, you know, tending to swelling and lacerations and that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't know. doesn't sound like a job that I would want to do. But anyway, uh, Kim Hunter 
played Grace Carney. You remember Kim Hunter from Streetcar Named Desire. Every time I see Kim Hunter, I always think of Stella, you know, Marlon Brando yelling, Stella, Stella. Well, anyway, (laughs) that's for another show. Uh, But anyway, great, great, great show. Please, you know, go out and take a look at Requiem for Heavyweight. As I said with patterns, you just will not be disappointed. Good stuff there. As we enter into this next segment of the show, I want you to think back to your childhood and the kinds of shows that you liked to watch back then. Were there any shows that stood out in your mind, things that you just really looked forward to or things that kind of triggered your imagination, maybe got you to thinking about your own stories or just shows that made you laugh or that you liked to watch with friends or whatever, any shows that are associated with really good memories for you. Well, I have a show like that, and that show is our next topic, which is, of course, The Twilight Zone. Now, in case you've been living on Mars and you haven't heard of The Twilight Zone, but you know what? just occurred to me that if you have been living on Mars, perhaps you've already visited The Twilight Zone. But anyway, I digress. The Twilight Zone show was an anthology series that ran from 1959 to 1964. So, it bumps into the northern border, or the the, the northern border, rather, of circa 19xx land. 1964 is usually our limit. You know, we don't really explore anything that's more recent than 1964, or very rarely do we explore things that are more recent than that. Why? Well, two important things happened in 1964, and one of them we just learned. Twilight Zone ended that year. Second thing is, in 1964, that's when the World's Fair in Flushing Meadows, Queens, uh, was going on, and that's the fair that was so very associated with Walt Disney. Now, if you have listened to the podcast before, or if you've been out to my website, you know that I have kind of a crazy fascination with that fair. And, of course, you know that I'm a huge Disney person. Love Disney. All right, well, anyway... The Twilight Zone was a fantasy series. It's often categorized as science fiction, but, you know, there really wasn't a lot of science in the show. I can think of a couple of episodes where science played a little bit of a role, the pilot being one. 
But most of the stories were not science fiction. They were just basically stories of regular human beings that were dealing with something extraordinary. So the the settings, the backdrops, the context of the stories were strange. But the people in them were just like me and you. And then, of course, there was always that classic twist ending, the Sirling twist, which was characterized by what I kind of describe as ironic surprises. You know, the story would seem to be headed in one direction, and then, you know, it would take an abrupt turn. And as a kid, I loved that. You know, every show was a puzzle, and you never quite knew how that show was going to turn out. I remember staying up late to watch Twilight Zone episodes. That was something that I discovered on my own. I I was a, a young kid, and I never could sleep very well. So I would be up late at night, and I just by accident discovered the Twilight Zones. I couldn't sleep. I put the TV on, and there was a Twilight Zone episode, and I remember what that episode was. That first episode was, um, I believe it was Five Characters in Search of an Exit. And I'll talk about that later. But that was the first episode I saw, and I was mesmerized, mesmerized by that episode. And so from that moment on, I couldn't wait. I would stay up late, and I would be down in our basement all by myself, and I I would be sitting there right in front of the TV, and I would be waiting for all those commercials to finish for that Twilight Zone episode to come on. And from the very minute that Rod Serling would be on there giving his little intro, I would already be formulating the story in my mind. You know, how is this story going to end? I would come up with my own endings. And then, of course, I really liked to write, even when I was a kid. And so I would try to write my own Twilight Zone-style stories with a twist ending. You know, I'd try to come up with the craziest, most surprising ending I could think of. Most of the Twilight Zone episodes that we see are 30 minutes in length. However, in Season 4, they tried out an hour-long format. We don't often get to see the hour-long format in syndication because it's an hour long and it kind of messes up the format, the scheduling format. But a lot of people don't like them anyway. That is not a season that is loved by Twilight Zone fans. But you know what? I like a couple of those episodes, actually more than a couple. Some of those hour-long episodes I think are really pretty good. And in fact, one of my very favorite Twilight Zone episodes is from Season 4. And it's one of those hour-long shows. I will talk about that episode on a future Circus Sunday night. But anyway, then during the last season, season five, the show went back to the 30-minute format. I think everybody knows that Rod Serling wrote several of the episodes of The Twilight Zone. But you know what? There were other writers as well. And some of these writers were powerhouse writers. Another of my favorite episodes was written by Earl Hamner Jr. And he's actually better known as the creator of The Waltons. I know, wild, right? Remember the Waltons? That was back in the 70s, Waltons Mountain. Well, that was all based on Earl Hamner's childhood and and his childhood home. He was also the guy, by the way, that did the voiceover narration for the Waltons. But before he did all of that, he wrote Twilight Zone episodes. There was another prominent writer as well, Richard Matheson. He wrote the fantastic science fiction classic, I Am Legend. Remember that? Oh my gosh, that is a good one. 
that is a fantastic book, but it's also a good movie. I think it's it's uh, had a couple of versions. There was an older version. I want to say that Charlton Heston was in the original film version of I Am Legend. I may be wrong on that, but for some reason I'm thinking Charlton Heston. But the more recent version was with Will Smith, and that was excellent, and Will Smith was awesome in that movie. But anyway, Richard Matheson wrote that. He wrote um, Bid Time Return. Bid Time Return. Now, you may not know that title, but you may know the film that was made based on that novel. The film was called Somewhere in Time. Remember that one? That starred Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour, and it was this kind of time travel love story. It was awesome, actually. That was a great movie. I love that movie. I mean, it wasn't great, like, as in award-winning, but it was just a fun movie, and I, I really enjoyed that one. Well, anyway, he's the one, Richard Matheson, wrote the novel on which that was based. Now, he went on to write a bunch of good stuff, but, of course, he was also a major writer on The Twilight Zone. Let's see, who else? There were other good writers. Uh, Charles Beaumont, he was responsible for writing several episodes. And, hey, how about this? Ray Bradbury wrote an episode. Now, interestingly enough, I've always been a Ray Bradbury fan. I mean, a huge fan. Martian Chronicles is one of my all-time favorite books. And yet, the one episode that he wrote, the name of that one, I think, is um, I Sing the, the Body Electric. I think that's the name of it. I don't like that episode. <laughs> but cool to know that he was a contributing writer to that show. There is so much to talk about when we dig into all of the episodes of The Twilight Zone, but I'm not going to do that right now. We will have future Sir, uh, Serling Sunday Night shows where we can do that. We do want to talk about the worst Twilight Zone episodes. Let's get those out of the way right now. We can get that get that out of the way in this episode, and then we don't have to visit those episodes anymore. Now, you know the format of the Twilight Zone. So Rod Serling comes out, he does a little intro setup to each story, and then he provides some closing thoughts on each. A few of these stories, compact as they are, you know, there's a 30-minute format, but with commercials and everything, it's like, what, I don't know, 22 minutes, 24 minutes. Even though they're very compact, most of these are really good. A few of them are brilliant, and then some of them are really quite terrible. (laughs) You know what? But here's the thing. You can't hit a home run every time. You just can't. And you, you've probably heard me say before, if you've listened to this show, that you have to be bad before you can be good. And even when you are really good, sometimes you're going you're gonna to take a risk and the risk just doesn't pay off. You know, your, your judgment fails you. It happens to everybody. So, oh, Rod Serling, I love you dearly, but some of your stories were not so great. Okay, so we're going to talk about five of them that I think are particularly bad. So before I tell you what those five episodes are, let me tell you at how I arrived at these episodes. Okay, you remember Nicholas Parisi. He's the guy that wrote that book that I've referenced, Rod Serling, his his life, work, and imagination. Well, he actually rated the episodes. He placed them into three categories, and here's how he he uh, labeled those categories. A one-star rating equaled a dog or a really bad episode. 
a two-star rating he described as passable or really pretty good. And then a three-star rating was what he called pretty damn good or a classic. I took all of the one-star ratings. I looked them over, and then I did a little rating system of my own within that category. Now, I do have to say, he put a couple of episodes in that one-star group that I would not have put in that category. I agree with all the, the bad ones that he put in there. You know, I, there, there were no bad ones that he did not include in that category. But there were a couple of episodes that may not be, you know, that three-star rating, but I think warrant a, stu- a two-star rating. But for the most part, I agree completely with the way he rated these episodes. So I'm going to do a countdown from really bad to worst of the worst, in my opinion. Now, I like the format Parisi uses for each synopsis, so I'm going to borrow those from him. Okay, so get ready for the countdown. We're going to start with the fifth worst episode, and that is called The Fear. That's a season five episode, and that one was written by Rod Serling. Okay, so here's Parisi's synopsis. In a secluded mountain cabin, a reclusive woman and a state trooper investigate the apparent landing of a ship from outer space. Their fears are confirmed when they discover an alien who is more than 500 feet tall. Facing down their own fear, the two of them stand their ground against the giant invader. When the trooper fires his weapon at the alien, it doesn't die. It deflates. It was a giant balloon. Oh, come on. (laughs) They find that there is a spaceship, and it's only a few feet in diameter. It's not the 500 feet, you know, that they, they saw in this balloon. It's very small, and there are very small aliens inside. Now, these aliens see how brave these humans are, and that the humans have failed to succumb to the fear So the aliens abort their mission to take over the planet, and they flee in terror. Okay, why is that bad? Well, because it's just weird. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's a balloon. Come on. You know, that was just a little too over the top. So I, that's not good. I'm going to put that in the really bad uh, category. Okay, are you ready? Number four. Sounds and Silences. This is from Season 5 also, written by Rod Serling. And here's Parisi's synopsis. An overbearing former seaman, Roswell Flemington, has an insatiable taste for loud noises, most particularly recorded sounds of naval sea battles. After his long-suffering wife leaves him, his hearing suddenly becomes so hypersensitive that the sound of a leaky faucet Sounds like a cannon shot. He visits a psychiatrist who suggests that his craving for loud noises stems from a childhood spent with a mother who constantly demanded quiet, and that his current condition is a psychosomatic reaction to his wife's disapproval. Convinced that this problem is all in his mind, Roswell is cured. When his wife returns to gather her things, 
Roswell demonstrates his newfound mastery of mind over matter by mentally turning off the sound of her voice. He just shuts her off. (laughs) He can just see her mouth moving, but there's no sound coming out. He finds, however, that his demonstration has worked too well because he is now utterly deaf and soon is on his way to a sanitarium. Okay, why is that bad? Oh, I'll tell you, this is a really annoying episode. And I was reading in the Parisi book that for many years, this was not in the syndication rotation. And I forget why. There was some sort of legal battle or something. I don't know. There was some reason why this was not in the syndication rotation. And so it was seen for the first time since its original airing, I think in the 80s. And so, you know, I think Parisi, if I remember correctly, he said something like, you know, and and when the audiences in the 1980s saw this episode, they wished they hadn't. You know, this was an episode that had been lost and they wish it had never been found or something like that. It's just, it's a really annoying episode. Okay, number three in our countdown. The Mind and the Matter. This is season two, written by Rod Serling. Here's the synopsis from Parisi. A grumpy, misanthropic man, Archibald Beechcroft, wishes for his own vision of utopia, a world with no people. When he receives a book concerning the mystical powers of concentration, he gets the chance to make his vision a reality. Just by concentrating hard enough, he makes everyone else disappear. Alone, he soon finds himself bored but he still can't stand other people and refuses to bring them back. He thinks of the perfect solution. Bring the people back, but make everyone just like him. Surrounded by a race of Archibald Beechcrofts, though, he realizes that he is impossible to live with. The only solution is to put everything back to the way it was and to make a few personality adjustments of his own. Okay, why is this a bad episode? One reason, the actor who portrays Beechcroft is extremely annoying. And I don't know who he was. I didn't look it up. I can't remember. But I just, there's something about him. He he just is annoying in that role. It's just an annoying character. It's just not an interesting or entertaining story. And also, it's kind of predictable. You kind of see where it's going. It's a little bit slow moving. Just not a great episode. Okay, episode number two in our countdown. Black Leather Jackets. This is season five. This one is not written by Rod Serling, but it's written by Walton. Uh, John Boy Walton. Earl Hamner. (laughs) So here's a synopsis from Wikipedia. Three beings disguised as human males wearing leather jackets are part of an advanced alien invasion force that are sent to Earth to infect city water reservoirs with bacteria that will kill all humans and domestic animals. Their own race needs room to expand. The pretext given for the extermination is that humans are violent and hateful and therefore deserve to be destroyed. The youngest of the three aliens, Scott, falls in love with a girl who lives next door to their rented house named named Ellen Tillman. Scott contacts their leader to try to convince him that the humans are worth saving, but the leader refuses, 
and Dean Scott a traitor. Scott returns to Ellen's house in an attempt to save her from the coming invasion, but her parents have called the police to take him away. They think this guy is no good for, for their daughter. Well, the police come, they take him away, and it turns out that the deputy is one of the invaders. So there's a little twist right there. So as the episode concludes, we see that the Tillmans are comforting their daughter and they don't realize that they are doomed by the upcoming alien invasion. Why is this a stupid episode? Well, it's just it's just uh, goofy. You know who is the girl, though? Ellen Tillman. Shelley Fabre. You remember Shelley Fabre? She was on the Donna Reed show. She was on One Day at a Time. More recently, she was on the show Coach back in the 80s. Okay, well, you know, as a young actress, she played Ellen Tillman on this episode. Okay, and are you ready for the all-time worst Twilight Zone episode? Here it is. It's called The Whole Truth, Season 2, written by Rod Serling. So here's a synopsis from Parisi. Harvey Honeycutt, a used car salesman who is dishonest even by the standards of his profession, comes into possession of an antique automobile that carries a curse. It forces anyone who owns it to tell nothing but the truth. He breaks the curse by selling the car to someone who needs a truth serum even more than Honeycutt does, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Okay, why is this a bad episode? Well, for one thing... You know, it doesn't stand the test of time. I mean, Nikita Khrushchev is no longer with us. You know, he doesn't, he's not really relevant to our time. So it doesn't, this episode does not age well. But even so, it's just kind of goofy. I mean, why would a car have as a curse, you know, forcing everyone to tell the truth? It's just sort of got that implausibility factor that I just don't think works. And it's kind of a boring episode. Now, that one is from season two. I think there was another one of these uh, top five terrible Twilight Zones that were in season two. And season two is actually a good season. A lot of the best episodes are in season two. But, uh, you know, you can't win them all. All right. Well, luckily, there are far more excellent episodes than there are bad ones. And we're going to explore the really good ones on future episodes. But here's my challenge to you. Why don't you go ahead and take a watch? Of those five really bad episodes, I think you can see them on Amazon Prime, or I know they're out on the internet. You can watch them for free. And uh, hey, let me know what you think. Do you agree that these are really bad episodes? Okay, so I'm really considering this episode of Circus Sunday Night as sort of a primer 
that will serve as a foundation for future Serling Sunday Night episodes that may, we may do from time to time. So in that vein, I think we have to talk about the pilot. That sort of sets the stage for the rest of the series. That little story, and it's a gem, it's a good one, is called Where Is Everybody? Parisi put this one in the classic category. It's a three-star episode, and I have to agree with him on this one. This was written by Serling, and it aired for the first time on October 2nd, 1959. Now, interestingly enough, the pilot episode included an introduction that was not done by Serling. It was done by a guy named Westbrook Van Voris. And here it is. There is a sixth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the sunlight of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area that might be called the twilight zone. So that intro was later rewritten and re-recorded by Serling. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Okay, so what is this episode about? Again, I'm going to make things easy on myself because I'm kind of lazy. <laughs> and I'm going to go to Wikipedia for the synopsis. A man is dressed in a U.S. Air Force flight suit, and he's walking alone on a dirt road. He has no memory of who he is or how he got there. He finds a diner, and he walks in to find a jukebox playing loudly. He lowers the volume, and he continues to call out. He's trying to see if anybody's there. Eventually, he heads to the kitchen, where he finds a hot pot of coffee on the stove and freshly made pies, so it seems like people have just been there and left. But he sees no one. There's no one there besides himself. He accidentally knocks over and breaks a clock, at which point the jukebox stops playing. The man leaves the diner and he walks into a nearby town. He sees a parked truck with an apparent female passenger, but she turns out to be a mannequin. Let me stop right there. Okay, so that is a scary scene. Oh my goodness, I remember the first time I saw that. Because it's just very eerie atmosphere anyway. The town is completely empty. He's walking along. He's starting to get more and more uncomfortable. And finally, he sees somebody across the way. He can just make out her head. It looks like a woman sitting in a car. And then he goes over there. He opens the door, and the way that he discovers she's a mannequin is she just falls right out on the ground. And it's really a chilling, kind of shocking scene. Very scary. Back to the synopsis. Like the diner, 
The rest of the town seems deserted, but the man feels that he's being watched, that there's someone around, but he can't see them. The phone rings in a telephone booth, and he runs to answer it. There's nobody on the line, and he can only raise a recorded message when he tries to call the operator. He grows more and more unsettled as he wanders through the empty town. He's increasingly anxious to find someone to talk to. Inside the police station, he uses the radio. Calling all cars, calling all cars, unknown man walking around the police station. Then he notices a lit cigar in an ashtray. This prods him to check the jail cells in the back. In one cell, there's evidence that someone had recently been there shaving. So it's at this point that he says, I want to wake up now. He thinks he's having a dream. He makes his way to the soda shop where he makes himself a sundae and he starts considering this has got to be a dream. And he marvels at how detailed it is. He sees an entire rack of paperback books titled The Last Man on Earth, February 1959. This really spooks him, and he quickly leaves. As night falls, lights turn on, and the man is drawn to the illuminated movie theater marquee. The advertised film is Battle Him, and this causes him to remember that he's in the Air Force. Inside the theater, he sits down to ponder this discovery and what could have happened that resulted in his being in this situation. When the film suddenly begins on screen, he sprints to the projection booth and finds nobody there. Then he becomes even more paranoid that he's being watched. Panicked, he runs downstairs and headfirst into a wall-length mirror. When he recovers from this shock, he gives in to the terror and he races through the streets, stumbling, falling, and startled by everything. He comes upon a pedestrian call button, and he desperately pushes it over and over, begging for help. The call button is revealed to be a panic button, and the man, whose name is given as Sergeant Mike Ferris, is actually in an isolation booth being observed by a group of uniformed servicemen. He's been undergoing tests to, to determine his fitness as an astronaut and whether he can handle a prolonged trip to the moon alone. The town was a hallucination caused by sensory deprivation. Okay, so there we have the Serling twist, right? The officiating general warns Ferris that while his basic needs will be provided for in space travel, he won't have companionship. Next time... You really will be alone, he says. As Ferris is carried from the hangar on a stretcher, he looks into the sky and tells the moon, Don't go away up there, and we'll be up there in a little while. All right, so interesting that despite this kind of nightmarish hallucination that he had, he's still willing to, to go up there. Okay, so I love this episode. And while this was episode number one, this was not the first episode that I ever saw. As I mentioned before, the first episode that I ever saw was Five Characters in Search of an Exit. I don't remember what season that was from, but um, I want to say it was season three, but I, I could be wrong about that. But Five Characters in Search of an Exit is about these characters who mysteriously find themselves in this um, cylindrical room. It's like, a, it's like a round, curved room. It doesn't have any door. There doesn't appear to be any way out except 
it's open to the sky, so they can see there's no ceiling. No one can remember how they got there. The whole episode is about them speculating as to where they are and, you know, what they should do, and then they attempt an escape by climbing toward the opening at the top. They come up with this scheme, and they end up climbing. Somebody gets out, and what that person who gets out discovers is that they're all dolls who have been thrown in a bin for a toy drive. Okay, well, imagine me as a little girl seeing this episode. Dolls that are trying to escape this toy bin. Oh my gosh, I mean, that's just fantastic. (laughs) You can see why that would just light my imagination right on fire. All right, and as I said, I was hooked right then and there. Okay, so where is everybody? in a way, is a true science fiction story. So I had said earlier that there wasn't a lot of science in uh, Twilight Zone. This is a little bit of an exception because theoretically, this could happen. Here's what Nicholas Parisi says about it in his book. Where is everybody had one story element that made it an effective pilot. Its situation could happen. It was grounded in just enough reality to avoid scaring away sponsors and conservative network executives and sell the series. Serling's opening narration says this, The place is here, the time is now, and the journey we are witnessing could be our journey. It seems explicitly intended to frame the story in relatable terms. Even the fact that it's essentially a one-man show facilitates the audience's ability to identify with the protagonist's predicament. Critical response to the premiere was almost universally positive. Ironically, though, One element that generated negative response was its ending, which critics saw as a cheat. According to Variety, Serling lets down his audience by providing a completely plausible and logical explanation, rather than opting for a more science fiction ending. But Serling knew what he was doing. Where is everybody? Placated sponsors, pleased critics, and intrigued audiences. The series had begun on a most promising note. Okay, again, that's from the Nicholas Parisi book. So that's kind of interesting. He played it a little bit safe there by creating a very plausible and, you know, a story that could actually happen. That is not going to be the case for all the other episodes to follow. Um, And then he was criticized for that a little bit. It's like, oh, we wanted a, a crazier ending. We wanted something more fantastic at the end. But anyway, even so, it was very suspense filled did the job, it sold the series, and the rest is history. Okay, so that wraps up our first Serling Sunday Night Show. As I said, we'll spend more time in the Twilight Zone in the future because, you know, is there a better place to be? This is the part of the show where I talk about my favorite thing of the week. And my favorite thing this week is summer. (laughs) Yeah, I know, kind of weird, right? But, you know, by the time this show airs, it will be October. And there's going to be a definite chill in the air. We're all going to be putting our jackets on. But as I'm recording this, it's actually warmer. So I'm recording this in early September. 
And we already have had a really cold week. We had an unseasonably uh, cold week last week. And right now, it's just beautiful. Low 80s. It's perfect. I was thinking, you know, I was in Springfield earlier this week. And then, of course, Kansas City. I live in Kansas City most of the time and then in Springfield some of the time. So I split my time between those two towns. But I took two really nice walks this week. You know, the flowers were out. The butterflies were plentiful. It was so, so beautiful. And so I took some film. And I thought, I am going to put together a little video. And this is going to be a gift for my winter self. So when I'm feeling cold and sad and longing for the sun, I can watch my little video and I can remember that the summer will return. Ah, summer, I miss you already. If you are interested in seeing that little video, I put a link to it in the show notes. I'm try- You might have noticed I'm trying to do a little bit more video now and then. I'm not going to do a whole lot of video, but every now and then I'll throw a video out there. And so I'm putting this one out there if you are interested in seeing it. I think it's like three minutes, so it's pretty short. Okay, so summer is my favorite thing of the week. Hey, thanks for tuning in tonight. I've mentioned before that I don't know how to promote things like podcasts. I wish I knew how, but I don't. So if you happen to like this little show and you're not embarrassed to tell people that you like it, (laughs) um, please subscribe or share or do that thing you do to pass it along. I don't know. Um, We're always going to be a small little group here in Circa 19XX land, and I like that. But, you know, it's always nice to welcome new people, too. Well, where does the time go? Monday is right around the corner, but don't feel bad because Friday is right around the corner, too. In fact, it'll be here before we know it. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. 